0: Well, good morning. Let's try it one more time. Good morning. It's very good to see you all. And uh, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here, and uh, that means I get the opportunity to stand before you uh, periodically and and share God's word with you. It's just something that I uh, I take a great delight and a sense of honor in doing so. <clears throat> and uh, man, it's just the same experience it seems like for me just nearly every time that we come together. Even, even when it's, it's like this and, and uh, you know it's, it seems kind of uh, spread out and, and, and a little bit, uh, dare I say, distant this morning, uh, just in terms of, of uh, where we're seated in conversations and conversations. Uh, and some of that I think was me as well. Uh, man, I just woke up and I was in a weird spot this morning. But But just coming here and and taking part in corporate worship together with with all of you, with the body, the bride of Christ, singing those songs, lifting those up to the Lord in praise and adoration and thanks, it just always, it it does so much for my heart. Uh, And and I truly, I say that sincerely. Uh, I came here this morning, I won't sugarcoat it, like I was not. In the right frame of mind to preach, but just sitting and and praying on that last song while listening to you all spe- uh, sing as as uh, the band led us in worship, it was just it was a sweet thing for me. And it always just it just I don't know it just fills me with life and it just brings me joy. I don't know how to say it any other way than that. And so I hope that you are able to experience those things. That when we come together, uh, we've talked about it at different times. Maybe not so much from up here, but within men's discipleship, we've had conversations of what does it look like? What does it mean for us to, when we gather together as one body made up of many parts for it to be both a, a, a special and a sacred thing? And so I just throw that out there. Uh, it's not in my notes anywhere at all. I throw it out there just for, just for you to bounce it around inside your head. What does it look like? What does it mean for, for this time for us to gather together just to, to treat it as a special and sacred time And that's what it is I think that's why it causes that, that stirring inside of me It's the Holy Spirit just drawing that out of me uh, So anyways, that's my introduction My name is Brandon, did I say that? Okay um, I am tasked today with, uh, we're, we're still in Advent So uh, I trust and hope everyone had uh, a really enjoyable Christmas you were able to gather together with, uh, with family, even if I know, I've heard stories of people doing it through Zoom, long distance. Long distance. Um, and so I, I hope one way or another you were able to, to connect with family and just enjoy the holidays uh, and we were able to just pause and reflect and to think deeply about the Lord. We've been in our Advent series, our short series, and we're going to wrap that up today. And so before I get started... With, with closing us out with this second advent of Christ, uh, I want to start by making a very declarative statement. And so, right out of the gate, we're going we're to start really strong, and I'm just going to make a, a strong declarative statement—really statements rather. And the first one is this: that that Christ has lived, Amen. He was alive. He lived. A, he lived a life as a man. Not only that, Christ died. Thirdly, and praise God for this, Christ has risen. He is alive. We do not serve a dead God. And then fourthly and finally, uh, what I really want to draw in on this morning is that Christ will come again. He absolutely will come again. And so two weeks ago, uh, Tony was up here and he shared with us uh, spoke about the the first Advent, and he laid out. I think, uh, if not, I'll tell you now. Advent is just another word for arrival or coming. And so, the first Advent of Christ was his birth, when he came as a baby uh, to to live a a pure, sinless, spotless life, right? And he taught, and he performed miracles, and and he he served uh, through ministry in various forms and fashions with his disciples, uh, and and that that all came as a response to His first advent, His first coming. And in all of that, uh, a lot of things were done and, and uh, He made a way for us, right? We talked about so many times about how our relationship with the Lord because of sin is severed. It's fractured, it's broken, there's distance between us and, and a holy God. And Christ came and He lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. Died a perfect, sinless, spotless death and, and spotless sacrifice so that He could atone for our sins, meaning just He made a payment for our sins, right? We, were, we had a debt that we could not pay and that debt was sin and the penalty for sin was death and Christ came and He laid down His life and He paid that, that debt for us and, and thereby redeemed us, restored that broken relationship back to God. Right, so now we have, we have union with the Lord because of Christ, our Savior, our mediator who serves as a go-between, who, who, who rejoined that, that broken, that fractured heart. So all of this, I'm saying, came out of the first advent, the first arrival of Jesus. And today, as I said, I, I want to talk about the second advent, the return of Christ the King. Christ coming back As king, what is that going to look like? What is uh, what's what's the imagery that comes with that? Um, Before I do that, though, I want to make another very clear statement. As uh, as Freshwater Church, I want to say this, and so that you know it, so so hear this very clearly. At Freshwater Church, concerning the second advent, we believe that the coming, the return of Jesus Christ refers to a very literal historical visible return bodily return of Jesus Christ the son of God coming back to earth right it's it's not figurative language it's not just imagery it is a very literal historical you you'll be able to we don't know when but you'll be able to mark it in time he absolutely literally will come back in bodily form and this is the second advent of Christ. And this return is going to be a great and a glorious return in all of his power in which all of the enemies of Christ will totally be defeated. And and the greatest part of that church, hear me. This this should just grip your heart. The greatest enemy is sin. That Christ will come back and He will defeat sin once and for all. It will be eradicated. It will be done. It will be no more. And this will all come from the glorious return of Christ. So what I want to do is I want to invite you. We're not going to read it yet, but go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 19. As I was preparing, a couple of things entered my mind. I I don't know how many times, if ever, I have ever heard a a message on the second advent come out of Revelation 19. Undoubtedly, it has has happened. I know that I haven't done it because another realization came to me. I don't think I've ever even preached out of the book of Revelation before. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited and happy to do so. Uh, I know that there's a, a ton of uh, a ton of mystery, a ton of confusion that that oftentimes surrounds this book. Uh, but as you turn there this morning uh, with the intent of us to look at the second advent of Christ, um, before we read that, let me ask you this question. Why is it important for us to know what we believe about the second advent of Christ? Why is this return of Jesus? why why does why does it matter what we think of it? Why is it important? It's important because while the biblical story of human redemption, which is much of what I just I opened with, uh, it, it takes a lot of twists and turns throughout human history. Right? We, we, we experience in our own personal lives many ebbs and flows, ups and downs, lots of twists and turns. And this story of human redemption all throughout redemptive history, it takes many twists and turns, but, but what I want you to understand is this story that, that we're a part of, it absolutely will reach a glorious resolution one day. There is coming a very real day when every single injustice in this world will be done away with. Every human suffering will be wiped away. Death will be no more. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. Suffering will come to an end. And this is our great hope for the future. We have have this comfort and this peace that comes through Christ in His first arrival. And in in the second return, the second arrival of Christ... I want you to be able to see this morning that there is great hope for the future. That one day, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our King, will suddenly and literally return from heaven to earth, and He will raise the dead. He will judge all men and all women. He will make new the heavens and the earth, and He will remove every trace of sin. And this is that glorious day that, that I believe that every believer should long for. So let me ask the, the question before we read. Do you, do you long for that day? Even now in this Advent season, do you ever pause and just think when you're reflecting on why we even celebrate Christmas? That Christ is coming back. And, and do you long for that day? Does it fill you with hope? Does it cause you to feel joy and, and a sense of anticipation? I think it is as Paul wrote in in Romans chapter 8 you don't have to turn there but but in Romans chapter 8 Paul says that all creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth and not only creation but we ourselves we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait in anticipation for the redemption of our bodies that will be that day So that means that we long with eager expectation for the completion of Christ's saving work. And I don't want you to misunderstand me here in in saying that if you are in Christ this morning that your salvation isn't secure. Your salvation absolutely is secure in Christ. Scriptures tell us that He holds you in the palm of His hand and nothing, nothing, not even yourself can snatch you away can remove you from his grip all right so your salvation is secure i'm not saying in any way that it isn't but this is that already not yet tension that we experience in the christian faith all right already not yet we have the first fruits of the spirit we are children of god we are we are heirs to the king but we still wait for a day we still wait for a day where our bodies will be fully redeemed and raised from the dead right we don't have we don't have back pain anymore we don't get around slow right we don't have asthma we don't have fill in the blank it's all gone do you long for that day that is the day that Christ will bring with him in his return promise you church that day is in fact coming and Jesus will return in the flesh literally so let's look to Romans chapter 19 verses 11 through 16 to see the way that John describes Jesus on the day of his return John, excuse me Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 16 and Lord of Lords. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we come to you now, Lord, with just a desire to, to hear from you, Lord, not from me, that you would grant us your Holy Spirit to come upon us and to stir our hearts and to grip us with conviction and to spur us on into to love and good works, that we would read The words of Your Scriptures, Lord, that are true and that we would let them just penetrate our heart, Lord, and take root there. And that we would think deeply of our Savior and the day that I hope that we all long for. And Lord, if we don't put that longing within our hearts this morning, that expectation as we look on to the coming of our King, whether it will be in our lifetime or in the lives of others, we know that day is coming, that Christ is king and he will return as we will see in victory. And we can rejoice in that. And I'm thankful that we can take comfort in that. And I ask, Lord, this morning that you would just use me merely as a vessel that the words that are spoken here this morning, Lord, wouldn't be that of my own. But Lord, just like my desire is for everyone here, the, the, the desire is the same for myself, Lord, that you would just use your word to preach to us this morning, myself included. Give us comfort in your words, Lord. Give us a longing expectation in our Savior. and It is in his name and for your glory that I ask all of this. Amen. So, as I said earlier, as Christians, I believe that this is a day that we should long for because, hear me, this is the one and only solution to every single pain, sorrow, heartache, loss, death, illness you name it. Any woe that has ever existed in the history of the world. This is the one and only singular solution to all of those things. And we're going to look at this more intently here in just a few moments to see just exactly how that's going to come about. The thing that I want to say first is is for those, if you're here this morning... And you don't know Christ as your Lord and your Savior If Christ isn't your King Then I want you to know right out of the gates That this is a day The words that I just read This is a day to be feared I want to make no illusions about that If you do not know Christ as Savior This is a day that you should fear That you should dread And this is because Christ will return as a conquering King he is prepared for war. And I know maybe that those aren't words that you're accustomed to hearing or that you're even very comfortable with hearing, right? Because we have this idea, this, this image of who Christ was on earth, right? He was, he was gentle and He was meek and He, was, he served and He loved And all of those things are true and good, and I'm going to unpack some of those in just a bit, but understand that this is a conquering king who comes prepared for war. He comes to judge with vengeance. He comes as the mighty lion of Judah. So for those who haven't been purchased by Christ, who haven't been covered with the righteousness of Jesus, I want you to know very clearly, and I'm not saying this with the intent to scare you, Whether you're here or in this room or you're watching uh, through live stream, I don't say this with the intent just to scare you. I say this because I want these words to grip you. That if you aren't purchased and covered with the righteousness of Christ, it will be the most terrible and terrifying day imaginable because this Jesus that we're going to read about, that will be the one that you will face on the day of his return. And so when thinking about the difference between between Christ and his first and his second coming, I can't help but think about one of my favorite uh, books of fiction. And uh, this is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Uh, the way Lewis... Let me back up. If you don't know this story, let me just give you some quick context, okay? If you don't know this story, then then I, I plead with you to read it because it is so, so good. I could go on and on. But, so, the story of of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How much time do I have? So, uh, there are these four siblings. And, uh... This is just going to be the Cliff Notes version. They, they manage to stumble their way in, into this, this other world known as Narnia, right? Unintentionally. And through a series of events, uh, they come to hear about this great lion named Aslan, right? And Aslan is a depiction of Christ, right? And I know before anybody says anything, this is, this is a work of fiction. I don't put any kind of stock in this um, but man the the imagery the similarities that Aslan has with Christ right he has all power all might all authority no one can overwhelm him and so I wanted to just read a a section of this I was going to just uh, give you my version of it but I just can't say it as well as Lewis did so I'm going to read this to you if you will uh, if you will endure it And I just want you to to listen to, um, especially as we get towards the end, this is a conversation, a little bit more context, between these four siblings and, as crazy as it sounds, stay with me, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, right? Having this conversation about Aslan. It starts, one of the sisters, whose name is Susan, she says, "'Who is Aslan?' "'Aslan,' said Mr. Beaver.' Why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. And by the way, the white queen... She is taking control of Narnia and and is oppressing the land and it's in a perpetual state of winter. You need to know that because of this part. "'He'll settle the white queen, all right. "'It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. "'She won't turn him into stone, too, will she?' said Edmund. "'Lord love you, son of Adam. "'What a simple thing to say,' answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. "'Turn him to stone?' If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all things to right, as it says in the old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. "'But shall we see him?' asked Susan. "'My daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. "'I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him,' said Mr. Beaver. "'Is is he a man?' asked Lucy. "'Aslan, a man?' said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not. "'I tell you, he is the king of the wood "'and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. "'Don't you know who is the king of beasts?' Aslan, he's a lion. He's the lion. He's the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he would be a man. Is he. is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just plain silly. Well, then, is, isn't he safe, said Lucy? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. As I said, I, I know this is, fiction but I think there's so many great similarities that we see as I said great in power might and authority no one can overwhelm him he causes reverence and fear in those who meet him he isn't safe for those who are outside of his fold which we don't generally talk about Christ in those terms but for those who are of him he is a good king he also creates in us I hope and pray this morning a longing desire to see him but now I want to pull back from that and I want to go back to the passage because this is the word of God which is alive and well and it pierces our hearts and so I want to look at it so that we can see what Christ's return will be like and how it applies to us today and in the days to come and I'm going to move rather quickly now but what we see in in verse 11 let me read it to you again this is John, John the Apostle, right? The, the Beloved of Christ, uh, who also wrote the Gospel of John. He says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So Jesus is described as this rider on the white horse who comes in righteousness to judge and make war. And oftentimes throughout Scripture, if you don't know this, white is a color that is symbolic of two things, both purity, which makes sense, but also in victory. So Christ comes in purity and in victory. He is the perfect one, and He is already victorious. He isn't coming to fight a battle that He might win. He's coming to declare victory in the battle already. Because Jesus declared on the cross that it is finished. The work was done. But now he comes to consummate that work and to bring it to fulfillment. And his victory isn't a boastful one, which is why he's called faithful and true. The victory that he declares is the Father's victory. It goes on in verse 12 with more description. To say that his eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head on his head are many diadems—it's just another way of saying many crowns—and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So his eyes are like a flame. It just his eye, his his gaze is one that nothing will escape from. He sees all. He sees those who are His. He he sees His enemy. It means that nothing at all will escape His gaze. It is pure in holiness and perfection. And His royalty, signified by the diadems or the many crowns that are upon His head, means that He is a great ruler. There is no ruler that is greater than Christ our King. He is the King of kings. He is the King with a capital K. He answers to no other king, all All men, all kings answer to Jesus. And although we know from the same John in John chapter 1 that Christ's name is the Word of God, right? John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, that means Christ. In the beginning was the Word. We know that Christ has a name there. We'll see that again in this passage a little bit later. But we have this phrase that says, He has a name that no one knows except Himself. Why is that significant? This reminds us that the Lord Jesus isn't like another. There's no one else like Him. There are things about Himself and His plans that haven't been revealed. And in His divinity, in His Godhood, there is still a mystery that veils a part of His nature as the Son of God. Now let's, let's pause for just a second and let me ask you this, this question. How, how are we doing so far, right? I think most of these descriptions we're familiar with. Most of them we're probably, if not all, we're, we're pretty comfortable with. It's not often that maybe we think of Christ coming in, in war, but, but so far these descriptions I think we're familiar with, we're comfortable with. Hopefully they provide us with some comfort and, and some hope. Believing in faith that that Christ is this King of kings and Lord of lords is something that we can and should feel good about. Especially when we consider the condition of of this world. Does that make sense? That, That we should take comfort and hope in Christ as King in relation to the condition of this world? Let me just ask a question that's not even in my notes. Like, Who here gets... Just looking around, whether you're on social media, or conversations at work, or conversations that you tried to avoid at Christmas—like who just who gets tired? Does anybody just besides me just get weary at the condition, at the state of of the world as the result of sin? This is the thing. This is the thing that that Christ is coming to repair. That should give us hope. We should long for that. Real quickly, when we get into the the first of the year, we're going to start a new series. And that series is is going to be on really the church and culture and not how the church can necessarily uh, affect culture, but, but really more simply put, it's like, what is this? This tension and and how do we weave together, if we even can, the this biblical Christian worldview and a worldly secular worldview, right? So we're going to talk about things like abortion and homosexuality and many other things that that we're just struggling out in culture and society. What does the scripture What do the scriptures say? Those things that to me, cause a bit of that weariness, right? When I look at the world and I see it operating and existing in a way that is contrary to the Word of God, in a way that is opposite from what the Lord's intent is, I get weary of that and I look forward to the day when Christ will come. I'm ready for those things to be destroyed. But now we come to verse 13, where it says that Christ will come in a robe dipped in blood. And this is a pretty intense picture here I want you to, to try to imagine it if you can Christ is coming John is looking and he sees this vision right he's on the island of Patmos he's, uh, he, he's a prisoner there and the angel of the Lord comes to him and gives him all of these visions and this is one of them and he looks and he sees Christ coming on a white horse but he's in a robe that it's dipped in blood and some have suggested that this blood is his own And I think that that view is a comfortable one, but I don't think it's right. I believe instead that the robe that's dipped in blood, that blood is is the blood of his enemies. And I believe that because nowhere in Scripture do we see that there's any indication that Jesus comes wearing his own blood. We see that nowhere throughout Scripture. But more importantly than that, I think we can put emphasis on this, that The blood of Christ that was spilled at the cross was during His first coming, His first advent. And that was for our redemption, as I already said. This picture that we're looking at here is the second advent. It's the second arrival of Christ when He's coming in judgment and wrath. This is not His own atoning blood which is associated with His first coming, but this is the blood, as hard as it is to maybe hear, this is the blood of His enemies from from trampling them in in what the the passage says, as we'll get to here in just a little bit, but trampling them in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. Is anybody uncomfortable with that? I have to admit, at, at times I am. But this is the Christ that we see coming. As difficult as the passage is, this is for us to hear and understand. I want you, what I want you to do is, is I want you to set aside your comfort. I want you to set aside the way you want to read this. And I want you to just look at the passage and read it for what it says. And I want to give you another passage to go along with it. I think we we may have a slide for it. You don't have to turn there, but you can just follow along. And this is in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 and 3. I think this supports the interpretation that I'm giving you. And this is a foretelling of this day that we're reading about in Revelation. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 and 3 says, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my wrath and their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. This is the Messiah speaking. He's saying that he alone wins the victory for his people. Hence only his garment and not those who are coming with him who we're about to read about. Only his garment is stained with blood. And as I said, I believe this passage in Isaiah 63 supports this. But also, uh, a New Testament Greek scholar by the name of William Mounts, try not to get too nerdy on you here, but this guy literally, right? And, and understand, when I, when, I'm not the kind of guy that uses literally when I'm like, I don't mean it as something literal. Like when people say, oh, they literally turned the world upside down. No, they didn't. Right? They figuratively turn the world upside down. Right? So when I say that Christ is literally coming back, I mean he is literally coming back. When I say that this guy, William Mounts, and these aren't even the same in, in, in even importance, but he literally wrote the textbook on biblical Greek. And he said this uh, about this view uh, that, that I'm giving you, this, this robe dipped in blood. He says Any view of God which eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse, which is the story that we read in Revelation. And so I don't don't share that in an attempt to be brash or edgy, right? I share it to say that, that we shouldn't dare try to domesticate the Lion of Judah. We should not dare try to declaw the Lion that is Jesus. He is a good king, but he isn't safe. So this interpretation of Christ's appearance, uh, it also seems to fit with the image of the armies of heaven. So let's pick back up In verse 14, and I'll read the rest of the way through, and we'll unpack these last few verses. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. So, this interpretation of, of this robe dipped in blood, not, not to uh, belabor this or spend too much time here, but Christ is coming with the armies of heaven. And an army indicates a battle, does it not? And a battle, I think we can assume a loss of life is going to incur. And so, Christ is coming with an army. And who is this army? This army that's dressed in fine linen, white and pure. Right? They, they don't have blood on their garments. It's white and pure, identifying them as the bride of the Lamb. Right? We know this. You can go back to verse 7 and 8 of this same chapter. Verses 7 and 8 tell us that this is the bride of the Lamb. This is the church, capital C church, universal, past, present, and future, all of the saints of the Lord. And they also ride on white horses. Again, more purity, more victory. They share in Jesus' victory, further proving that they are his army and is made up of the saints of the church. This is Jesus the King who will strike down the nations by the sword of his mouth. The sword of his mouth is the word of God. This is the living and active word of God. The scriptures tell us it is sharper than any two edged sword. This is what, come, what Christ comes with to, to win his, to take his victory. No one will be able to stand against it. Jesus will rule the nation, it says with a rod of iron. This is Psalm verses two verse nine, which prophesies this. It says, "You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel." So Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will judge justly. He will strike down the wicked. And as I've already drawn attention to in Jesus' first appearance on earth, He was marked by humility and sacrifice. But His second coming, He will come in glory and power. And all of this will come to a, a very important conclusion so just stay with me. I'm going to read one more thing to you. Uh, this is uh, a document that's referred to as, as the Belgic Confession. And don't fall asleep on me. Uh, this is a statement of faith that was written in 1561 during the Spanish Inquisition. And it was written with a, a, a really, really cool intent. As unfortunate as it was, it was, it was written as a plea for understanding and toleration from from the king of Spain. Right? These these Protestants wrote this document to the king of Spain who was determined to eliminate the Protestant religion uh, from his kingdom. And so they wrote this as a plea for an understanding. And so I want to read you some selected words. I took a lot of it out from this really larger section on the second coming of Christ. I didn't want you to fall asleep on me. So it's my hope that that this passage uh, won't cause you to do that if I can find it. Sorry, here we go. <clears throat> we believe, according to the Word of God, when the time appointed by the Lord has come, that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven physically and visibly, which is how I opened, just as he ascended with great glory and majesty to declare himself as judge of the living and of the dead, burning this old world with fire and flame in order to cleanse it. And then all men will personally appear before this great judge, both men and women, that have been from the beginning of the world to the end. And all shall be judged according to what they have done in this world, whether it be for good or evil. And then the secrets and the hypocrisy of men shall be disclosed and laid open for all. And therefore, the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful to the wicked and ungodly, but most desirable and comfortable to the righteous and elect because then their full deliverance shall be perfected. And there they shall receive the fruits of their labor. The faithful shall be crowned with glory and honor, and the Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and his angels. Every tear shall be wiped from their eyes, and their cause, which is now condemned by many judges, as both heretical and impious, will then be known to be the cause of the Son of God. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Therefore, we expect that great day with the most ardent desire to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So if you were able to stay with me through all of that, that was really just an encapsulation of everything that I wanted. I I have shared with you so far and I'm about to share with you. And every bit of that was taken, not from the opinion or the mind of man, but it was taken from the Word of God. That when Jesus returns on that last day, He raises the dead, He judges the world, He makes all things new. And this is why the early church comforted one another with a prayer of Maranatha, which just simply means, Our Lord come. They longed for it, they desired it. Not only that, but the Lord gave His own comforting words in Luke chapter 21 verses 28 when He said, Look up, your redemption is drawing near. Church, listen, this is the day that we should be longing for. We should be desirous of this day. It shouldn't cause us to feel fear or or dread. We should long for it. There's a conversation that's taking place in, in Luke chapter 17. Again, you don't have to turn there. We're not going to read it. But, but from that passage, there are, there are things that I think that we can pull out of it. That whole section really is a good parallel to this because it's a conversation that Christ is having with his disciples about his return, about the great and glorious day of his return. And I think we have some slides. There are three points that I want you to see, that I think we can take from this passage. It's Luke chapter 17, if you want to jot it down. Luke chapter 17, verses 22 through 37. Luke 17, 22 through 37. I knew for the sake of time we wouldn't be able to read it, but here's what I want you to to see that we, we can pull from this. Three things, importantly. First and foremost, Christ coming, His return, it will be unmistakable. No one will miss it. And this might step on some toes, but I'm going to say it anyways. Christ will not come back in a manner, in a secret rapture where He takes away His church and the rest of the world is left looking around confused, wondering where everyone went. This isn't a, a left-behind type of a thing. Right? If you're familiar with those books or the movies, Christ will not come back in that manner. When He comes back, it says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Christ says in Luke chapter 17, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. So He will split open the skies and everyone will see Him. It will be unmistakable. Second, we will not be ready for the second coming unless we understand His cross. His first advent brings about the second advent. We believe in the work of his, his first coming. And when we do, we're able to see the second coming as something as good. It's good news for those who believe. We don't have to fear that day. And then lastly, we are not ready for the second coming unless He is more important to us than the world. So, let me ask you, are the things of this world more important to you than Christ in the day of his return? And let's make it real. Is is he more important, is that day more important to you than your marriage, or your children, or your significant other, or your job, or your possessions, or fill in the blank? Is that day more important than... All of those things. And if it's not, then you're not ready. And that's not to say that you're not still in Christ. But all throughout the Gospels, we see this, this expectation. The disciples, the, the, the apostles, they, they thought deeply within their hearts that the Lord was going to return in their lifetime. They were looking for it. Right? Their eyes were set on the horizon. They, they were expecting Christ to, to return. In the light of all of this, I fear that we are sometimes discouraged because, listen, Christ ascended nearly 2,000 years ago, and the language in the Scriptures are that He's coming back soon. So do we, do you feel that? Do you feel discouraged? Do you do you not live with that expectation because you think it's it's this far off thing? It's distant and it's away. You're not looking forward to it because so much time has passed since Christ ascended to the right hand of God. He hasn't come back yet. But listen, before Christ's first advent, before his first arrival, the people of God had to wait millennia for their Savior to come. They waited for His first advent. And then, finally, the day come, the the, the day came, which Tony shared with us two weeks ago, about how their faith was finally vindicated when the Son of God was born in Bethlehem in a manger. And so now, too, we wait with eager expectation for our faith to be vindicated as we wait on our Savior to return in all of His might and His glory. So I'll start to wrap up with this. As much time as we could have spent on this, here's what I, I really want you to take away from all of this. Church, understand first that, that these words are true. That Christ absolutely is going to return in the fashion that, that these words say. And he's going to come back in a very different manner. Christ came in his first advent, and praise God for this, because this is our salvation stems from this, but he came... To seek and save the lost, right? He was meek, mild, gentle, lowly. He came to serve and and rather than than to be served. But when he comes back, it will be in a very different fashion. He was the sacrificial lamb of God. He comes back as the Lion of Judah, as a conquering king, prepared for war, prepared to pour out the wrath, the fury of the wrath of the Lord. So understand that, that if you're here today and, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, or if you're watching on live stream and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, again, I don't say these things to scare you. I say these things because I love you, because I want you to respond today. I want you to see that this is absolutely the Christ that is going to return. I don't want you to waste your life living an entire life without Christ. And then you come to the end and you stand before your judge only to receive His just wrath and punishment. And I very purposefully chose those words of waste your life. If you live your entire life without Christ, you've wasted it. I want you to respond today and I want you to put your faith in Christ as your Savior. For those of you who are here who profess Christ as Savior, I want to both challenge and encourage you. Are you living your life in faithful obedience to your King? I'm just going to let that question sit out there for a minute because I really ponder it. Are you living your life in faithful obedience to your King. Are you living your life with expectation upon His return? We don't know the day or the hour that He will return, but we believe that He will indeed return. And so are you living your life with that expectation? It sounds... A bit cliche to say it this way, and I've heard it so many times growing up within the church, but like, we don't know when he'll return, but it could be today. It could be tomorrow. I hope, I I truly, in all sincerity, can tell you, I hope that he does. I hope it's today. I hope it's tomorrow. I'm ready. He could return at any moment. Are you ready? Will you be found faithful? And then lastly, dear Christian, take hope. As dreadful as these words may sound to you, take hope. For Jesus, your King, is not dead. He is alive and He is seated on His throne. He is your shelter. He is your Redeemer. He is your Deliverer. He is your hope. Right? Because every single one of us are afflicted with the result of sin. We we are all sinful. We, are, we all fall short of the glory of God. The scriptures tell us that that the wages of sin is death. So we all deserve death. We all deserve to be enemies of God, but we're not. And now we can look to these words about the return of Christ and we can take hope We can look with expectation. So take hope and rejoice in Him today. Praise Him for being the King that He is and that He will return one day in victory to make all things new. For He will right every wrong. He will eliminate every virus, every illness, every element, sin and death. He will eliminate all of it. It will be gone forever. And He will give us a new home. Listen, where there will be no sun and no moon. Do you know why? Because the glory of God, which will be reflected by His Son, will be, hear me, the literal source of light for us. We know sun and moon because we have Christ. Goosebumps. That's our king. So do you believe that? More importantly, will you live your life as though you believe that? So I just I I charge you, church carry that with you every single day until the day that you die or until Christ returns. Amen? I'm going to pray. I'll have the musicians come. We'll sing. I'll be over here to the side, I'm sure, with some others. If you need to talk or pray, we'll be happy to do that with you. And if not, then Just think about these words as you as you are in your spot and as you sing. Just lift up praise to Christ, who is the King, who is coming again in all victory, in all power. Nothing will stand in His way. Take comfort in that. Let's pray. Father God, thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. I thank You for this passage, as difficult as it may be for some of us to hear. I ask that you help us to believe these words. And Father, if there's someone who is listening this morning who who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, I pray, Father, that you you would just fill their heart and their mind with conviction in this moment now. To know that they live their life as a sinner, separated from a holy God, and that Christ is the only way to remove that sin, to bridge the gap that exists between them and you. Help them to see the truth of that. Let that truth take root in their heart. And Lord, just allow your Holy Spirit to move upon them now. And as strange as it may sound for me to ask this, Lord, that you would just make them just an overwhelming sense of conviction to the point where they can think of nothing else. For those of us this morning who who know Christ as our Savior, who have been bought by His blood, but, but yet we haven't been living our lives in a way where We are expecting our King to return at any moment. Lord, help us to do that. Regardless of when He returns, we know that Christ absolutely will return in power, and victory. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to take hope and comfort in that. And help us, Lord, to have desire and expectation for that day to come when all things will be made new. All sin, all sickness, all death will be done away with. We'll be given new and perfect bodies. And we'll be able to stand in the glorious light of our King. I can't wait. God, you're good. We thank you for this Christmas season that we've been able to be in and to just to think deeply about your Son and our Saviour. Father, just be with us now as we head into a new year with new facing new challenges, but Lord, just to, to trust that this this is your church and you will use it the way that you desire to do so. And not only that, but our Christ is on the throne, and we can walk mightily into the next year. We pray all this in faith.